Welcome to our latest episode of the Health Disparities Podcast. Our twice-monthly exploration of health equity brought to you by Movement is Life. We are recording this episode at our annual caucus where several hundred health equity advocates have come together to hear from health equity leaders and experts from across the United States. I'm Dr. Tamara Huff, and I'm a member of the Movement is Life Steering Committee. And for my day job, I'm an orthopedic surgeon and founder and CEO of Visio Orthopedics in Columbus, Georgia. It is great to be with you today. Joining me today, all the way from San Francisco, California, is Dr. Alicia Jackson. She is a proven leader in empowering women to improve their health and the health of their families and communities. She was named the first Chief Community Impact Officer at Atrium Health, where she established their health equity and social determinants of health strategy. More recently, she is the inaugural president of the Lloyd Dean Institute of Human Kindness and Health Justice at Common Spirit Health. She's a staunch advocate for health equity. Dr. Jackson is fighting for all people to have the opportunity to be healthy, regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, income, or any other attribute. Welcome to the Health Disparities Podcast, Dr. Jackson. Thank you, Dr. Huff. So excited to be here. Dr. Jackson, your talk today has the description of every community should be valued and deserves to help make its own plans for the health and well-being of its residents. And enhancing the social determinants of health is critical to improving the health status. These things include transportation, well-lit sidewalks, full-service grocery stores, recreational facilities, full-service and urgent health care services, and local employment. In our talk, we'll talk about some of those different things, but we'll also dive into your actual presentation itself, which was absolutely phenomenal. Oh, thank you. The energy, just everything. So if you could share with our our listeners a little bit about your opening and kind of talking about what what we as providers need to think about when we're thinking of health equity in the individual and in looking at people as something beyond just a non-compliant patient. Mm -hmm. No, thank you. Um, and again, thank you to Movement is Life um, for having me. Um, thank you for quite frankly, be an accelerator of these conversations, um, these, these extremely well-needed conversations. Um, so I just give kudos to, to, to you all and honor the work that, that you're doing. So, you know, a little bit about what I talked about today as it relates to what impacts health um, are these social determinants of health um, and health behaviors. And again, I think the research, if you look at it, it tells us over and over again, um, that the things that most have the most impact on our health are things that happen outside of clinical care walls. Um, and I think sometimes as a physician, um, that is a little bit hard to hear, uh, especially given the training and, you know, sometimes we're doing this work to care for patients, you know, 24 hours, seven days a week. Um, so I, I think it's important, though, that we acknowledge that uh, the things that happen outside of the walls of, of where we work is, are the critical drivers of, of health outcomes. 
And a big part of that is health behaviors. Um, so we talked a little bit uh, earlier about what are those health behaviors, whether that's exercise or um, healthy eating or which substances people may choose to indulge in. And, and really the decisions that we ourselves make individually that impact our health. And of course, that is uh, critically important. And that's one of the things I love about Movement is Life is that you all really are providing resources um, to help with that beha behavioral change. But I also, as you know, talked about there are decisions that are being made for us outside of our you know, selves that actually drive health outcomes. Um, and those are the policy things that we have to talk about. Those are the economic uh, investment uh, things. So you talk about, you know, often people, providers specifically, will label patients as noncompliant. Um, and that's something that I encourage everyone to just take that term out their vocabulary. I don't believe that patients are noncompliant. I don't think anyone gets up in the morning and thinks, I want to be unhealthy today, right? <laughs> um, so I think our responsibility as care providers is to help identify what those barriers are that people have to achieving great health, um, acknowledge what they are, bring awareness, help patients mitigate you know, or eliminate those barriers so they can get to their best health. And again, going back to some of those barriers might be things that's happening in their community. So if they live in a food desert, that's not something that they necessarily had individual input into, right? Um, if they live in a, um, you know, March of Dimes just released the maternity care desert report just a, a few months or a few weeks ago, actually. Um, again, individuals are not necessarily responsible for making decisions around where OBGYN providers are located. Right? So I, I think we have to start acknowledging these decisions that are happening outside of our own decisions around our health behaviors and, and quite frankly, how those outside decisions actually influence the decisions that we do make individually. Because I may want to exercise, but if I don't have a park, a safe park to walk in, or there are no rec facilities nearby and I don't have transportation to get to the closest YMCA, for example, uh, that drives me being able to exercise. So I think those are the things that we really have to be intentional about now. I love what you just said for a variety of reasons because it really dives into who we are in Movement is Life. One of our signature programs is Operation Change. And in Operation Change, a core tenant of that is that behavioral change model and meeting people where they are. So in meeting people where they are, we also understand that you may be in Chicago where it's maybe not safe to go take a brisk walk around the corner. Mm -hmm. Or mm -hmm. you are in rural Kentucky where there isn't a YMCA down the street, yeah. that the only thing you can do to exercise is go walking with your group only during some times of the year because it's so cold. Right. So understanding <laughs> and meeting people where they are um, is is. It's a cornerstone of who we are and who we are with Operation Change, but I love to hear that perspective of it um, in meeting and going into our communities. So you have a background in rural health. You had a chance to be out there and experience it firsthand as a family medicine physician, mm -hmm. which kudos, <laughs> we need you. We really need you. We need to be partners. How are some of the ways that you found to partner with other community members 
and especially in rural areas, um, to address some of these social determinants of health, to kind of bring, bring awareness to health equity in these communities, in our communities. Yes, no, thank you for that. And, and, and thank you for mentioning uh, Operation Change. Um, that is an amazing program. Um, and the one thing I also want to call out about that program, not only are you all leveraging the science around behavioral change, but you're also leveraging the science around race concordance. And that was something that Dr. Connor uh, mentioned earlier. And, and, and she said that when you all initially launched that, there was a little bit of pushback. But again, what the data tells us, what the research tells us is that people who have providers who look like them, who can connect with them, um, tend to have better health outcomes. Um, and so the fact that you built that program around and, and, and was culturally humble enough, right, to, to, to build that program to say, okay, you know, there may be um, a need for African-American women that might be a little bit different from Hispanic women. And one of the things that you all mentioned was, for example, around the dietary component and how, you know, food is very cultural, and we have to acknowledge that. We should acknowledge that. That's one of the things that makes us uniquely different as, 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 um, as different ethnicities and different cultural backgrounds. Um, so changing the, to make food healthier in the Hispanic culture is going to look different than in the African-American culture and the dominant culture. Um, so I, I think I just want to, again, say kudos and because that was a that was a bold move um, that was a bold move but that's what we need we need organizations we need leaders who are going to be willing to accelerate this conversation but again accelerate it in a way that acknowledges the science um, behind equity and and I think um, that's just critically important so I, I did want to just say that before talking about my uh, experience in, in rural Amer America from a from a provider standpoint, um, I will. So I practiced right out of residency uh, in uh, rural South Carolina, a town called Union. And I don't know if anyone listening out there will know of Union. Um, a lot of people, if you remember the Susan Smith case back in the 90s, um, th that's where I ended up practicing. Um, and so, so a history of having um, some racial tension um, in that community. However, I have to say to this day, that has been one of my favorite, if not my favorite, practice environment. Um, you know, I was um, a young African-American female physician coming into a community that um, had only seen one other black female physician during its time um, practicing in that community. And fortunately, I was able to join the practice that she was a part of. And um, I really had to build trust. I mean, there were, there were definitely, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, there were definitely patients who did not want to see me. Um, now, I, I often tease that most of them gave me grief about being a Yankee, more so than being a black woman. <laughs> Um, and I, I really clearly had to pick between Clemson or the game, you know, the University of South Carolina. <laughs> so I, I really tried to stay neutral. But my children, they, they won and, and, and were the house divided because uh, both of my children um, started their lives um, in, in union. 
And I, I mean, I have some of my best friends now who are, are from Union and from communities that you may not necessarily think, oh, they would be best friends. Um, but I, again, one of the things that I think is critically important for us to think about when we're addressing rural communities is relationships. Um, relationships are important no matter where you are, but specifically in rural communities, they, they are so resilient. Absolutely. And we have to acknowledge that and, um, and quite frankly, celebrate it. Um, and part of the reason that they are so resilient is because they truly build community. They truly build relationships. And one of the things that I saw while I was there was just in the faith community, um, how the churches of different de de denominations, different ethnic backgrounds, um, were really able to come together as it related to health. Um, and so did a lot of work with our faith communities there, um, did a lot of work with the students. Um, we, I was at one point in time the team doc for the one high school in the county, right? <laughs> um, but I loved it. It gave me an opportunity to interact with the younger um, you know, generation. And they, you know, I always say, you know, our younger generations, they give me courage um, because they are just so different. They're so bold, courageous. They don't have a problem calling out <laughs> an issue, right? Um, so that was one of the things. So really leveraging our younger people to drive some of the conversations around health and health outcomes, especially as it relates to behavioral health. Um, that's another thing that um, that I think we you know we should be thinking about and how we are addressing behavioral health in in this country. So I think relationships, leveraging faith community, leveraging our young people, um, is you know is definitely important. Operationally, I I do have to acknowledge um, that we need to think about infrastructure. You know, unfortunately, what we've seen, we were already, prior to COVID, starting to see a decline in um, critical access hospitals, which are mainly based in rural communities. Since COVID, that, since COVID, that trend has only accelerated. Um, so we're losing a lot of critical healthcare infrastructure in our rural communities. And financially, I understand why. And most of these decisions are being based off of finances. But from a community standpoint, we really have to be thoughtful about is that the right way to go? Or if we are divesting a hospital, what other than healthcare resources are we putting in its place? That could be leveraging technology and again, we can leverage technology in rural communities. I think there's this misnomer, but the infrastructure needs are different. And, and so we have to acknowledge those things, right? Um, leveraging um, providers doing like rotations through certain rural communities, leveraging mobile medicine. A lot of hospitals and health systems and quite frankly, community organizations now have mobile units that they can send out to to different communities. So, so I think there are ways for us, even if we have to divest of a hospital and a community, we should always have a healthcare sustainability plan uh, for those communities. 
regardless of if it's rural or urban, but definitely from an urban standpoint, the infrastructure needs are often different. And, and so we usually have to be more thoughtful about that. That's excellent. <laughs> I really, every, there's so much to unpack with that. And a lot of what you said, of course you are addressing the specific needs of rural communities, but I love how you go into the infrastructure and the importance of infrastructure, because really, that's something that we can we deal with in urban communities mm -hmm. as well. It is. And it, again, all this was laid bare with COVID. It's been here the whole time, but COVID unmasked a lot of the things that we were able to paper over during that time. I want to circle back to something that you brought up earlier on is going into a smaller town where you may be the only person or one of only two people that looks the way you do. It always brings in that infamous, infamous word that no one wants to talk about racism mm -hmm. and how does that play a role in things. And in your talk, you brought up getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. And we talked about a lot of uncomfortable facts. Um, and that no growth really happens when you stay in that comfortable zone. Specifically with health equity and getting more different stakeholders involved in speaking at the table. How do we as physicians, for example, or even healthcare providers address that elephant in the room, address the real the reality that racism does exist and there is structural racism, not so much individual per people, but more of the larger system that is a root cause of these inequities. So how do we share that and how do we bring that message forward? Yes, well, uh, clearly this is hard work. Right? We've yes. been doing this for for decades. I, I do. T I have hope, and I'm optimistic uh, right now because I definitely since the pandemic and George Floyd, I, I think there's been like this dual reckoning, if you will, um, around health disparities and how racism, sexism, classism, all of those things contribute. Um, to the disparities that we continue to see. And uh, there's, there's still so much that needs to be done. And quite frankly, we need to accelerate um, the conversation. So I think for providers specifically, whether the, yes, to your point, nursing, physicians, therapy, physical therapists, occupational therapists, you know, um, yoga therapists, you know, there's so many different areas now that I would say we are providers of care. We're providers of health um, and, and, and care. And I think there's a couple things that we need to do. One, we should be informed. And, you know, I think the reality is, you know, and, and, and Dr. Hub, you can probably speak to this. I didn't have formalized training yeah. during med school, during pre-med, you know, around the history of medicine, the history of racism in medicine, how medicine contributed to eugenics and racism and, and sexism, um, didn't have information around bias, you know, I didn't have training around culturally competent care. Um, and, you know, we've made some strides in that, but definitely we, it's not like every medical school is now required right, to have this in their curriculum. I fortunately went to a residency program in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, that was specifically focused on urban underserved. Um, and that's where I had the opportunity to start to, to learn 
more detail, some of the, the learnings I had t- taken up on myself, right, to, to learn some of those things. But that program did specifically focus on health disparities, community medicine to mitigate um, those disparities in population health efforts. And, um, you know, it was, it was on one hand, validating, right, to be like, oh, some of these things that I felt or that I heard, there's actually evidence and research and literature around it. Um, but also it was a little depressing to, to be like, wait, there's evidence research around these things, and yet this is not being taught to everyone. Um, so I think it, it, we do have to take it upon ourselves to really get knowledgeable about why we have the disparities that we have in this country today. And I think if you really are being honest in your pursuit of knowledge, you are going to be uncomfortable because you will start to learn about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. You will start to learn about Henrietta Lacks. You will start to learn about forced sterilization in this country that was happening into the 80s in some states. Um, You will start to learn about eugenics and, and how who created, there were, they were physicians who created the whole entire eugenics movement um, that led to the Holocaust, quite frankly. Um, so um, so you, you'll, you'll have to get uncomfortable. Um, but I think that's where we have a unique opportunity as care providers to not only get uncomfortable ourselves, but help others get uncomfortable. Um, so I think that's critically important. I think the other thing is after you start to learn about these things, right, then you have to do that true, like, insightful introspection, if you will. Um, Are you, I I think when we talk about racism, people tend to go to, am I a racist? And and you should do that, um, but that's not the, the main driver of disparities in this country. The main driver from a racism standpoint are the policies, the procedures, the systems that have been designed to systematically exclude people in this country. Um, and so, what, you, know, you know I'm a quote person. One of my favorite quotes is by Edward Deming, who said, a system is perfectly designed to achieve the results it achieves. A system is perfectly designed. So when you look at our systems here in America, whether it's the healthcare system, the education system, the criminal justice system, the housing system, the social service system, um, every system that has been created in this country was created to exclude historically. And now it, it, it works as it was designed to work, right? So, you know, to a certain extent, I'm often like, if you, if you start to do the history, you know, learn the history, it should be of no surprise to you then that we have these disparities. So I think we have to really start to push back. We're all leading in broken systems. And I do think it's important for there to be diverse leadership. So that's, that, that, that is critical. But I think we really have to start pushing back and think about how we design new systems um, to really address um, some of these disparities. And, and one of those things to think about from a racism standpoint is beca- you know, being anti-racist. Again, there are tools. <laughs> there are things that individuals, that systems, that organizations can do to specifically be anti-racist. It's not about being non-racist. It's about, OK, if you believe that racism exists, 
based on the data <laughs> and the research that we have to validate that, then what are you doing to change that, to actively change that? Actively, right? Actively change it. And, and I think all of us, from a care provider standpoint, um, need to be thinking that way. Um, because that's the only way we're really going to, like I said, create new systems to, to really make sure everyone achieves their best health. And that's so important because it, it makes me think back to something you said a little bit earlier. This next generation, they're not afraid. No. They, they have a totally different framework. So people of our generation, when you say racism, as soon as you say that, a wall comes yes. up. It doesn't matter whether or not you're talking about structural racism or systemic racism. There's, there's a wall. And there's a defensiveness. And I think this is harkens back to, uh, well, addressing this harkens back to what you said earlier of leveraging and reaching out to our youth and how to expand this mission, our young residents, our, our trainees to see, okay, let's, let's open up, let's be more broad and be able to reach out to the larger community. Also, too, when you build relationships and you do the hard work of building community, it's amazing how much more open people are. Yes. Um, I agree with you. I, I, my first practice was in Waycross, Georgia, in southeast Georgia, um, very small <laughs> place. And even though I'm born and raised in Georgia, I'd never been there before mm -hmm. or really spent time, considerable time down there. But building that trust, building that sense of community, involving the faith-based community, reaching out to the kids, before you know it, there is a level of support that crosses racial lines, yes. it crosses economic lines, and you start seeing that synergy there because many of the things we talk about in health equity, yes, there's a racial part of it. We cannot deny that. But there's also an economic part of that, mm -hmm. um, a serious socioeconomic component of that. And it's exciting as, as we get the courage to name the uncomfortable, to name the elephant in the room, it opens up a way of us collaborating to bring about a better future mm -hmm. or a better change. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's powerful what you're saying. I, I, just, I love it. I absolutely love it. And honestly, Operation Change is built on that. You yes. know, it, going into those communities, having those different difficult conversations, and then bringing people in that are culturally concordant, that are willing to have to deal with that elephant in the room. And when you deal with that, it's not just beneficial to the organization that's trying to get into the community. It allows the people in the community to be seen. Yes. And one of the many great workshops that we were both in yesterday was on listening and storytelling. Yes and empowering the community to tell their story, but also for us as providers, for us as advocates for health equity to really listen in response. So, love it. <laughs> it was terrific. Changing subjects a little bit now, you're moving into a new role. And I, it's so exciting, the idea of an institute of human kindness, yeah. of health justice, and in a world where civility is in very short supply, 
it is exciting to me that there is even an, such an institute exists. So could you share a little bit about this role that you're moving into? Yes, yes, thank you. So I am, I think, day number nine <laughs> uh, in this in this brand new role. Um, so I'm, I'm so excited. You know, one of the things I will say that drew me to Common Spirit Health uh, was its mission, vision, and values. Um, and, um, you know, we are now the largest provider to patients with Medicaid in this country. We are in 21 states, um, over 140 hospitals, um, over 1,000 um, ambulatory care sites, and we're full continuum healthcare system. So we have, you know, uh, rehab centers, we have assistant living, we have home health. I mean, so we really are embedded in our communities um, longitudinally and, 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 and uh, across the entire care continuum. Um, but we've always had this focus on serving the vulnerable. And a lot of that comes from the fact that the two legacy organizations that make up Common Spirit, so Dignity Health and Catholic Health Initiatives, were founded by sisters. And, um, you know, we're founded by these amazing women who, quite frankly, recognize the need and said, we're going to do something about it. Um, and so that took courage, <laughs> um, that they, they were innovative, um, they were anti-racist because they were going into communities of color, um, you know, before, you know, the established medical um, industry was, was doing that. And, you know, they, they were all about service. Um, and so, again, that was one of the things that really drew me to, to Common Spirit. And, of course, at the time that I joined, Lloyd Dean uh, was our, our CEO. And Lloyd has been such a tremendous um, force in the healthcare industry over the years. Um, he recently retired, uh, and I think you know many people probably know that. And as a part of that, you know, our organization was really thoughtful about how can we honor his legacy um, and have him be a part right, of, of, of continuing to advance the, the things that he strongly believed in. And so um, one of the things, and, and again, you know, a quote from Lloyd is uh, many years ago, he talked about how one of the most innovative things that he's seen in healthcare has been the power of healing through kindness. And Actually, at the time, they worked with Stanford, and um, they have a center for compassion and, um, and um, kindness, and really, again, looked at the research. And there's been way more research now in the last decade around the science of kindness, compassion, empathy, and trust, and how that actually does lead to better outcomes for a lot of different industries, but healthcare specifically. You know, patients have uh, improved blood pressure. Um, you know, you look at things in the hospital, um, the lowering of the heart rate, uh, just by saying a few kind words, um, the uh, teaching uh, providers in the art of compassionate care. There are actual models, right, that you can train providers and how that impacts um, patient care. Establishing trust. I mean, we've, we've talked about trust <laughs> um, a lot uh, over the last couple of days. So, you know, I, I think we can't it, we can't continue to ignore the fact that building trust leads to improved health outcomes, improved uh, um, for communities of color, the ability for them to get preventative exams um, when they have when they're receiving that recommendation from a trusted care provider, um, the 
uh, medication adherence rate. Again, science, evidence-based, that patients take their medications at a higher rate when they are being prescribed by a trusted care provider. Um, so, um, you know, because of all of this, um, the decision was made to create this institute that really focuses on that science around, like I said, kindness, compassion, empathy, and trust to accelerate health equity and social justice conversations. And I do think it's, um, it's extremely needed. It's a time where we've seen social isolation across the world significantly, significantly jump up since the pandemic. But even prior to the pandemic, we were seeing a trend um, of people reporting social isolation, um, depression, anxiety levels starting to go up. And, and even some of the research around, even though we are the most connected ever from a technology standpoint, um, we're becoming less and less personally connected. And again, as humans, we need personal connection. Like literally, physiologically, it releases good hormones right, yeah. that improve our health, and it helps lower the hormones like cortisol, for example, mm -hmm. that can lead to you know worse um, health outcomes. So, um, so this is a this is a critical time. I, I feel like this is a critical time, and I'm excited to step in and help create something brand new um, that really is going to hopefully put humanity put civility back at the center of these conversations and remind each other of our shared humanity. Um, and, and at the same time, you know, recognize that we can, I can honor you at, in your differences, but also know that at the end of the day, you bleed red just like I bleed red. <laughs> and, 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 and I do believe that health is, is the, we have the opportunity for health to be one of the biggest connectors of people because we all want to live our best life. We all want to be healthy. That is such a powerful way to close out because we all want to be connected. We all want to be seen. We all want to be heard. We want to be valued. The idea of compassion, kindness, that, that's what everyone wants. That's what every human being wants. And the fact that you're bringing evidence to that and bringing research behind that because it's more than just a warm and fuzzy thing. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's clinically proven, it's evidence-based that it helps. Yes. It makes you healthier to be valued, to be seen, to be heard. Yes. And that's powerful. So I have enjoyed speaking with you so much and it, it's just been an, an amazing experience. But unfortunately, sadly... We're almost out of time today. Thank you so much, Dr. Jackson, for sharing your insights with us here on the Health Disparities Podcast today. It's been a real pleasure. I hope we can continue to collaborate with you with Movement is Life and all the wonderful activities you're doing and moving forward in the future. A quick reminder to our listeners, you can access the videos of the plenary session, including Dr. Jackson's amazing talk on our website at www.movementislifecaucus.com. And if you liked the episode today, please do let your friends and colleagues know about the Health Disparities Podcast. Until next time, I'm Dr. Tamara Huff saying thanks for listening, be safe, and be well.